Today I'm going to share some of the missions that took place while I was in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. As the Chief of Security for the Utah Hospital Task Force, of course I had the opportunity to protect the task force commander, Steve Studdard, a great man. I talked about that in the first segment. And I also had the opportunity to protect doctors and nurses on several missions. One of them specifically was up in an area, a remote area, where we had pulled off into a village which had thatched huts, typical jungle kind of environment. And there were several people that needed help, and they were in kind of a remote location, and we had just returned from an orphanage up north. And so we stopped and and rendered aid. The doctors and nurses disembarked, and myself and one other security guy uh, pulled off to the top of the road and overwatched the village. And while we were there, uh, it started to get dark, and I encouraged the doctors and nurses to get their mission done so we could get back into the bus, load up, and get back to the compound. Well, one of the doctors wasn't too happy about me trying to tell them what to do and got in my face, and he screamed at me at the top of his lungs and told me to pretty much shut up and not tell him what to do or tell the doctors and nurses what to do. And I told him, I said, I said, look over there. And he did. And I identified to him a bunch of males, large males, who had machetes, crooked ball caps, and cell phones. And I said, if we don't get in the car and leave now, we're going to have a potential problem. And one that I might not be able to stop without a significant loss of life. And reluctantly, he got in the vehicle and the other doctors and nurses were very compliant and very good. And we drove off and got back to the compound uh, in the evening hours. The next day, he came up to me and apologized, bless his heart, and told me that he is diabetic, that his insulin was off, and that he got really kind of grouchy when that happened. And that's why he kind of went off on me. There's a real interesting dichotomy inside of this story where the bodyguard who is there to protect is motivated by the security and the protection of those within his circle of trust, the principles that he is there to guard. The doctors and nurses are there to extend medical aid and to take some risks in blending into the environment so they can, or, or engaging the environment so they can render aid. And these two worlds in Haiti collided several times, but the doctors and nurses overall were phenomenal and uh, incredible heroes in my book to this day. Their desire to help, to volunteer, to go to this area, to risk their lives to help others was absolutely incredible. And the few rubs that we had were, they were not important. They were not significant. But they are interesting as a professional bodyguard for high-risk areas to me to identify the challenges that exist when you are a knuckle-dragon, gun-toting protector and you're dealing with some very kind, loving people who have taken oath to never exclude anybody from being helped. It's a really interesting blend of the two worlds. And it came to a head that evening. I appreciated that doctor's apology, though. It 
did go a long ways in helping me restore some respect for him and some confidence that I could do my job. Every morning, I was able to give the doctors and nurses, there was over 100 of them, a briefing on security and safety for the day. Information and intelligence that I had gleaned from several sources that I had established in country. And then in the evenings, we did a debriefing, and we would talk about the lessons learned. And I would only take a few minutes. I'd try to be very brief. And there was one moment in the trip when I, on the mission, when I had given a briefing about potential abductions. There was two Christian missionaries from uh, the United States who had been, two females who had been abducted, taken to a garage, a big, huge warehouse area, kind of a big garage, and been sexually abused. And they had lived through it, but it was reported as strong intelligence about the dangers in Haiti at that time and to stay in groups and all the things that I had been telling to these good folks and trying to warn them about. Sometimes those briefings were met with uh, scoffs and not scorn, but kind of roll of the eyes like, you know, why are you here? Why are you doing this? In fact, it's kind of humorous. Somebody who was on the mission who was not a doctor, uh, humorous in a kind of a demented way. He was not a doctor. We had just landed in Haiti. The airfield was not secure. The 82nd had met us there. I disembarked with my rifle and my pistol by gear, as did my brother Bravo. And this gentleman walks up to me. He was the operations guy. And he looked at me and he looked at my rifle and he said, do you really think you're going to need that right now? (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, you know, how about we give Haiti more than five minutes on an airfield that's unsecure before I put my rifle down? Later on, when I was running missions up in the mountains to find that little guy who had been abducted, this gentleman actually came up to me and said, I heard you're running missions up in the mountains. And I said, who told you that? And I got to the source and shut the source up and told him that you're putting our life at risk by opening your mouth. And he looked at me and he actually said, I'd like to come with you on one of your missions. I said, really? He said, yeah, I always thought I would do rather well in circumstances like that. And I said, nothing, other than looked at him and said, no, you're not going on any missions with us. I wanted to say, was it the watching all so many seasons of Jack Bauer that made you feel qualified to go up into the mountains of Haiti and deal with some of the most vile and evil creatures I've ever met? Very interesting the way people think because they see something that they can do something. In training and in operating, it takes seeing, hearing, and doing repeatedly to become competent and qualified. And then it takes experience in the field to know that you can actually be trusted because you've been tested, quote, under fire. And normally those people will react favorably, but not always guaranteed that they will. But without the experience and without the seeing, hearing, and doing and just having some kind of infatuation with the concept of a mission, to me it was kind of odd and it didn't really fit. Another mission that we went on up in the mountains of Haiti, there was this road that was twisty and turny and 
kind of went all the way up to the top of this mountain, and I, I grabbed one of the translators who was a former missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so he spoke the language. He came up with us. He's about six foot six, big guy. And we started to go up this mountain, and he stopped us, and he said, no, you can't go up this mountain. I said, what? He goes, no, this is a terrible area. And he said, as missionaries, when we were here, we were not allowed to come into this area. And I looked at him and I said, bless your heart, my young brother, but the very areas that you were not allowed to go into when you were serving a religious mission are the exact areas that we have to go into to find lost souls, to help people, and to do the things that are really hard. And he literally got out of the car and would not go up the mountain. He waited down at the bottom of the mountain, and we went up that mountain many, many times and never with a translator. We had to kind of fend for ourselves and speak broken Creole and French and English to try to communicate to accomplish the objectives that we had up in that area. Up in that specific area was a couple target houses that we were looking at for some abducted people, human trafficked people. And that was essential that we were up there. And we were actually up there surveying with doctor's shirts on and stethoscopes with our rifles uh, hidden in a car and our Glock 17s stuffed in our crotch while we surveyed the houses for damage and assessed medical aid. The good news is that we actually did take the information that we uh, gleaned and acquired and shared it with the United Nations personnel so they could go up and follow up with medical visits and and hell, but we would never take doctors and nurses up into that specific area. It was way too dangerous. It was like a shanty town, and there, you know, everything was tin roofed and uh, concrete structures and completely impoverished people. I have a few pictures posted on davidbrunell.com that show some kids from Haiti in squalor with, you know, just a shirt on or just pants on and very, very difficult circumstances. And that's where some of these king and queen pins actually had houses. And they were up in an area that was very, very safe for them and very unsafe for everybody else. Very interesting environment. I remember one of the missions that we were going on in the uh, middle of our trip to Haiti. We were in a deuce and a half or a big five-ton truck driven by the 82nd Airborne. We were in the back of the truck with a bunch of the folks from the Utah Hospital Task Force. And there was a couple soldiers in the back. And as we were driving down Port-au-Prince, I looked out from the truck and saw one of our blonde-haired, blue-eyed volunteers who was not a nurse or a doctor. She was one of the folks that was assisting administratively, was alone in the middle of the road, surrounded by Haitian males who were touching her. And they were grabbing her hair and they were touching her body and she was panicking. We dismounted from the vehicles and retrieved her and got her back to the compound. And, you know, even though you give these briefings and you talk to people about safety and protocol and all these things, it's not until people actually have a fear for their life sometimes that it gets ingrained. The middle brain doesn't have an experience that relates to being attacked or harmed or in jeopardy that can help them understand that they are at risk if they don't follow proper principles and protocols and procedures. This came to light with one specific male doctor who had gone downtown alone against all of my instruction 
had gotten in a, what's called a tap-tap. They're like little cabs, but they're little trucks that you get in the back and you pay them some money and and then they take you to your destination. And they had been gouging the Americans and, and everybody who was there. And and if you showed money, then they'd sometimes take you to an alley and roll you, beat you up and take your money. And if you're lucky, you lived. And this doctor, this is what happened to him. The driver took him to a remote location and kept on driving different direction than the doctor wanted to go. And the doctor finally got out of the vehicle almost while it was moving and evaded this, this guy, this driver. It probably saved his life or saved himself a beating. He came to me afterwards and he was just mortified. And I, and I told him, I didn't do the whole I told you so thing, but I, I reinforced to him. I said, look, there's a reason we tell you what we tell you. And if you listen and you follow the instructions that we give you, your, your likelihood of success here and survival and returning home safely is greatly increased. And he definitely was preaching rather than listening after that experience. You know, when those kinds of things happen and we give the briefing in to the, to the folks in the bleachers of the soccer stadium in the mornings, um, it would become a little bit more real. As I closed this segment, there was one specific experience which really ingrained in the doctors and nurses that were with us, that we were there to help, that we were not there to impede them from doing good, which is sometimes, I think, what they felt, that the rules and the structure had prevented them from rendering aid at times when they needed to render aid, that that took priority over safety. It's a hard thing to, to tell people that are healthcare oriented that, and because I was a rescue guy, I remember I used to do search and rescue and extrication out of vehicles and cliff and mine and trench rescue and water recovery missions. So I understand what it's like to be adrenaline induced and in the middle of a quote fight to recover a human being who is declining physically and you're doing everything you can to keep them in the mix and keep them alive. It's a difficult place. And then if you, have, if you have somebody on the outside saying, hey, it's dark, it's dangerous, we need to go, it, uh, the adrenaline and the emotion is already there and it becomes even more difficult. And the complexity, and the, it gets compounded in different ways, the complexity of that circumstance. So I do get it, but my job was to bring them home safely, all of them. And I took that extremely seriously. We were on our way up north to an orphanage that I've talked about a little bit before. And on our way up, I was in the front of the bus for a while. Then I was in the back of this bus. There were 34 people on board. I have a photo where I have 34 written on my hand. It's on my website. And that was the number of people that we arrived with. And I wanted to make sure I wrote it in marker on my hand so I knew how many we needed to return with. Count them in and count them out is kind of the principle. And as I shifted to the back of the bus and put John Bravo up in the front and everyone's sitting down and, and John and I are sitting down and we're driving for several hours up north to this orphanage to do a couple surgeries and a, and a medical, a med cap, they call it, a medical clinic. And all of a sudden an explosion took place, extremely loud. And the bus was struck. I jump up. I see Bravo jumps up, rifles come up, I scream, everybody down. Everybody gets down on the bottom of the ground of the bus, 
And first we told him, keep driving, keep moving. So we moved several hundred yards and then we pulled over to assess what had happened. You know, if it was a boxed kill ambush, we wanted to make sure we drove through it instead of stopping in the middle of it. So it turns out that another large vehicle, probably a bus, got so close to us, it was almost a head-on collision, but both the mirrors on the side of the buses struck and exploded and shattered all over the bus and broke glass. And when we found out that it was nothing significant, I was able to get the doctors and nurses to come up off the ground. And before we drove, I told them, I said, you guys did a fantastic job. This is exactly how it's supposed to work. We go up, you go down. We take care of the threat, you stay low. And I said, I'm extremely grateful and proud of you guys for listening and doing what we told you to do. And good news is it was something inconsequential. There was no real threat, no real danger. Life is good. You know, that was a real turning point for all the docs and nurses that were on that 34-person mission. They went back and they told everybody that we were the bomb, that we were amazing and we were there to help. And they became our advocates. And, and I got very close to many of the doctors and nurses after that because they realized we weren't there to make life difficult. We were there to help them to do their job. These are the complexities of being a bodyguard on a task force that is filled with doctors and nurses and some of the best souls that, that God has ever put upon the earth. It was a great experience overall, a tough mission, but one that yielded lifelong relationships. To this day, I still communicate occasionally with some of the doctors and nurses. Matter of fact, one of the specialists I see sometimes for my ground out shoulders and back is one of the surgeons who went on that mission and performed great labors of love and has been back many times to Haiti to help that great country. I hope you have a great day today, and I hope you extend yourself to all those medical personnel that are out there on the line 724, helping us to overcome everything from common colds and flus to significant traumatic injuries. My hat's off to them, and I encourage you to be safe and have a great day.